and welcome to another edition of St. Paul's Letters to America. I'm your host, Ray Gerard, and next to me is your co-host, Mr. Bob Henicus. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Ray. Good to be here. Beautiful day today. It is a beautiful day, and so this is St. Paul's Letters to America. This is the program that starts, uh, well, we could start the program like this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, hey, if St. Paul were here today and he were doing this program instead of me, I know that would be a big disappointment. I know how much you know people would rather you know, hear the words of wisdom that come once in a great while, if ever, from my mouth. <laughs> I, think that, I think there are radios going off all over the place. And, and, and <laughs> Thanks for the encouragement. <laughs> right now. <laughs> but anyways, but if St. Paul were here today, he'd probably start just that way. That's how he started some of his letters, because that wasn't just sort of like this trite, uh, simple little greeting that, you know, didn't bear any kind of a second thought. Now, for him, if St. Paul said grace and peace, that would be an actual gift of grace from God and peace, the peace of, of God, the peace that we're only going to know after this life when we get to heaven, to have any of that here on this planet. I mean, for St. Paul, these concepts were not these abstract things. They were very real. And I think very much that that's how he would start this program. That's what he would wish for you. Well, that's sort of where he, he went from the life he was leading to God calling him very directly and Jesus saying, why are you persecuting me? Um, he became very understanding of what God wanted and desired and understood not to talk about trivial things, but to talk about what was real, what was truth, what was going to be our future when we pass away and get to join our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in heaven. Through, through him, we get to go to the Father. And St. Paul knew that from this experience he had on the road to Damascus. And he took everything—you know, sometimes we, we think— why is someone so intent? Why is this such a big deal? Well, to St. Paul, it was everything. His life changed. It, it completely changed. And all he wanted to talk about was saving everyone else in the world to come to know who Jesus was. Because everything else was just pure, you know, simpleness. Fluff. Yeah. Um, yeah, what God wanted, um, that is, and that was, extremely important to St. Paul, and is extremely important to St. Paul. Uh, what God wanted, what God wants for us, what God wants us to do with our lives, these are the questions that, as you say, Bob, uh, concern St. Paul. And so these are the questions that should concern us. And if we turn to St. Paul, maybe he can help us with that. So we look at these things that are happening in our world today and ask, well, St. Paul were here, how would he answer them? How would he look at them? What would he advise us? And we always, you know, start with a letter from St. Paul, and, and it's always significant, and uh, it's always something that could easily have been addressed to America. It could have been St. Paul's letters to America. Uh, it didn't have to be to the Colossians or the Galatians. It wouldn't change. And last week, uh, we started with a letter and an issue that is really a very, mu a very much a hot-button issue in our country, in our society today. And what kind of an issue is more appropriate than to turn to St. Paul to try to deal with? And uh, the story that we discussed last week and that we're going to continue and, and finish up on this week is uh, one where there was a, 
there was a parent who got a phone call from his uh, school. He had a 12-year-old daughter in school. School, you know, office, the office uh, called him up at work and said, hey, you know, could you come down to the school? Uh-oh, you know, something's, you know, something's amiss. What did my daughter do, you know? Well, she tried to commit suicide. Suicide, yeah, suicide. Because, well, um, it, it has to do with gender issues. Gender issues. This was new to the parent, and not because it was an absentee parent, but it was because the school had secretly been counseling the daughter to transition to a different gender, unbeknownst to the father and to the family. And there's a reason for that. In the words of school personnel, they knew that the father and the family was Catholic, and they instructed the child to keep this hidden from the parents. They worked surreptitiously to uh, go behind um, you know, what the parents were aware of, go behind their back, so to speak, and uh, counsel this child to change her gender. As a result of it, the child tried to kill herself twice. So if this was so important to the child, that they couldn't tell the parents because this was going to be so good for the so good for the child. This was so important that they had to do whatever was necessary to allow it to happen and do whatever was necessary to keep it from being prevented. It was that important that you know, and that's why they had to keep it from the parents. But if that's the case, if they were so right about this, then why did it go so wrong? And we explored that the last time. And we uh, posited three things. We proposed three things. One, that transgender theory, as it is now being promoted, does three things, or it could be looked at as doing three things that really are not the best and really that are inevitable. First and foremost, it involves separation from God. It involves separation on three different fronts. Involves separation from God, separation from other people, and separation from a person's very own self. Separation of God, one that we discussed last time, is relatively, uh, well, relatively easy to see. If you believe in an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God, and uh, and you and you believe that, then God doesn't make mistakes. And God doesn't do anything that's bad for you. If he's an all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing God, he's only going to do things that are good for you. This is the God that the Catholic Church has maintained throughout its history, is our God. He is all-loving. He is nothing but love. And so when someone is born with characteristics that, causes them uncertainty, confusion. They feel like they're in the wrong body. They've got what is called gender dysphoria. Is it a mistake from God? Well, whether it's a mistake from God or not, gender theory holds, we can change it. We can change it. All we have to do is decide, and boom, uh, and we can do this. As a matter of fact, some people, there's a, there's a teacher that had a video out as an educator, and, um, you know, this person's feeling on their own personal gender changes day to day. So, you know, we can do this. 
That's the theory. Well, if God, if there is a God, if God created us, and if he is all loving, then where do we have the authority to change what he created? If we are a creation of his, where do we have the authority to say, we're going to change this? We're not going to say, thank you, God, for giving me existence out of nothing. I, I would... There would be, I would be part of just uh, oblivion. I would be part of nothingness if it weren't for you. You gave me life. Not only did you give me life, but according to the Catholic Church, uh, and according to St. Paul, uh, God destined us for adoption to himself, to be united with him. I mean, that's not a small thing. And he designed all that before the foundation of the world. He knew us before we were born. If all these things are true, why are we not just simply thankful? And, you know, and if Jesus uh, came and died for us to open the gates of heaven, as he did, then why aren't we just simply thankful? No matter what our situation on this earth, the fact, as you were talking about earlier, Bob, uh, that you know, the really important thing is the life after this one, if that involves, no matter what our physical manifestations are, no matter what our psychological manifestations are, if at the end of the of the game, at the end of the game, we're going to be united with God, what else matters? Now that's not to trivialize or minimize the difficulties, the anxiety, the stress, the you know the the suffering that people go through with real, genuine gender dysphoria. It's not to diminish it in the least. There's no uh, in, you know there's no impression, no indication being given here, no implication being given here, at least we hope none, nobody takes it, that um, this is not important and that, you know, people uh, do not suffer with this and that there should be anything less than real sympathy for those people. But people have all kinds of different forms of suffering. And no matter what suffering we undergo, whether, you know, you have a, a, you know, a skin color that's not in the majority, whether... You know, you have a gender you don't think is appreciated by society or at least that you're not comfortable with or whatever. Or we're born with a, a physical disability or, or, you know, whatever. Or you're, you're subjected to sexual abuse as a young person, whether it be by a priest or anybody else. Whatever suffering you undergo, um, what does it matter in the end if we end up united with God? In heaven. And as a matter of fact, if we approach this suffering with gratitude toward God for this adoption to himself forevermore, no matter our suffering, if we can accept the suffering and go forward with gratitude toward, to God for the suffering, then uh, we give glory to him. And I, th- I think, Ray, one of, the, one of the points you made that is like almost all of the points you make, very substantial, and that is that every one of us, every one of us has— You better be careful about what you say. Yeah, has (laughs) tremendous struggles. There isn't a person born on this earth that didn't have some consequential issue. St. Paul himself was so confused he was running after Christians and killing them. He was present at the death of St. Stephen. Now, it's hard from the scriptures in, in Acts to really determine whether he was the driving force or not, but he was certainly there and continued on that path. 
And so St. Paul himself, who we find an amazing individual with the way he wrote to all these different groups he visited and is a big part of the following of Christianity, following Jesus Christ, was a cold-blooded, heartless killer. Now, that's a, that's a heck of a problem to have. Yet, he was able to accept and come to grips with what he had done and devoted himself to changing that and helping Christ's church get off the ground and be what it is today. Everyone has great difficulty. Everyone has struggles. Everyone has things that hurt them, harm them, cause separation from God, from other people. And it is through that, as you mentioned, and I, I think it's really important, it is through that suffering that we come to know truly who God is. If we don't have any suffering, it's my belief that it'd be hard to turn to God, to come to know Him, to come to understand Him, and to realize that it is only through Him that we will have this eternity, this love that we are destined to have. He designed us that way, to love Him, and He gave us that love as well. But we as human beings make mistakes. We have trouble. We struggle. And all He wants to do is reach down and hold us and help us get there, get through those struggles. And certainly gender dysphoria is one of those struggles that someone can have. And, and very, very hard. You're confused if you're in this position. You don't know what to do. You're afraid of the rest of society and what they might think and how they might respond. Very difficult. Very difficult. So, and we could, we could go on this one particular line of, of discussion for, for quite a while, but this suffices to say that one of the three elements of uh, the separation that's, that's caused with gender theory is separation from God. Another one is separation from other people, specifically, for example, parents. That's inherent in the story we just referred to, the news story we just referred to, uh, where the, you know, the parents were kept out of the loop. Um, but it's not just parents; it's other people as well, and we can uh, and we'll be discussing that. But and also separation from one's very own self. Now, what do all these things have in common? Well, Saint Paul wrote a letter about the body, and what he wrote sounds very simple and direct and understandable. It's not necessarily all that deep, or is it? He wrote. A body is one, though it has many parts, and all the parts of the body, though many, are one body. If a foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it does not, for this reason, belong any less to the body. Or if an ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it does not, for that reason, belong any less to the body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I do not need you. Nor again the head to the feet. I do not need you. But God has so constructed the body so that there may be no division in the body, but that the parts of the body may have the same concern for one another. Now you are Christ's body and individually parts of it. For if in one spirit we were all baptized, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. So on the surface, very, uh, very logical, very sensible, uh, very simple. Hey, you know, I can't say to the hand, I don't belong to you. I don't need you. But that's really not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about Christ's body. So what is that? 
That's the individual person. Then that's the group of all humanity. And that's God as well. The individual, the people that he knows, and God above. They're all united. That is Christ's body. And we can't separate out parts of it. And so Paul draws this analogy between in the human body. He uses the human body itself, the body itself, our physical body, to illustrate this concept. Now, he could have, he could have illustrated this, this concept otherwise, that we're connected to Christ, but he made it very direct. It's as direct as trying to cut off your hand from the rest of your body. It's we're connected that strongly. And there's something about the human body itself that, as the focal point of this story, uh, leads to some conclusions. One is this. The body is important. The body is very important. God created the body, and God created it in such a way that everybody has a concern, that every piece of the body has a concern for another piece of the body. And God so constructed humanity that we all, if we're living right, if we're living with our eyes fixed on God, then we all have concerns for other members of the body. The whole idea for gender theory is that people are discriminated against. Society shuns certain people. They make them feel unwanted unless they fit these you know, very specific and accepted and well-established social norms. And that if norms are so well-established that anybody who doesn't conform then has to be excluded or shunned or feel like they're out of place, then there's something wrong with those norms. Discrimination is a problem. Well, of course it is. Of course it is. If someone... It's almost, it's almost like if you hurt someone's feelings, that's almost worse than if you give them a black eye. A black eye will heal. Feelings maybe never will. And even if, you, even if you repair a relationship with somebody and they forgive you, that doesn't change the fact that it was done. And if you've hurt somebody's feelings at that point in time of your life when you did that, You've offended God. And, not, and God has this tremendous ability not just to forgive, but to forget. But it happened. And God is also a God of justice, and our wrongs will be righted and we'll pay for them. And that won't keep us, if we ask for mercy, sincerely, from being united with God. But there will be, but justice will demand something from us. Either we'll suffer in this life or the next before we get completely to heaven. But justice will require some recompense. Why else did Christ suffer for the sins of the world if justice didn't require recompense? Justice, order, these are things that the Catholic Church has maintained since its inception. If we get to the point where, you know, we don't have to pay or don't have to be responsible for the things we do, there is no order. So in any event, um, the body, the human body, this is, this is what Paul chose to use uh, as his example. 
And there's something glorious about the human body. It, it comes out in this reading from Paul. God so created the body. God created the body. If God creates it, excuse me, it's a little important. So that's our physical body. Um, so, you know, are we supposed to consider it as, as not a glorious thing? I mean, there's another you know, reading from Paul where he says, hey, don't you know that your body is the temple of God? Yeah, we have this little doctrine called oh, the Eucharist. And so we all become arcs of the covenant. I mean, how unbelievably special is that? In the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant was only accessible to certain people. It was, you know, I mean, uh, it was this, this, this grand, holier than anything else. The holiest of holies. The holiest of holies. And now each one of us, thanks to the Eucharist, thanks to this great gift, the sacrifice of, of Christ, we're all Arks of a New Covenant. Yeah, your body's a temple. It is important. Created in the image of God, created for love, uh, temples of the Eucharist. Um, it doesn't get any bigger than that. And we can't treat it like something that, you know, from day to day we can change. Uh, there's, there's something that just is, uh, that is, dis I mean, it's, it's not, an ordered kind of way of looking at things. So, in any event. Now, um, there was a particular Catholic thinker who uh, maybe kind of put this, what we're trying to talk about in, I think, um, simple, understandable, uh, down-to-earth kind of terms. And he said, man is born as a man and not as an animal, plant or raw material, without anyone asking for his consent beforehand. It's a gift from God. Uh, since male or female sexuality is part of the expression of our individual body, we cannot change it, essentially, but either develop with it positively or rebel against it. And that's the case. And a lot of people who go through gender dysphoria describe a, a state of being, you know, it's sort of like at loggerheads with themselves, uh, rebelling against themselves. It's a, it's a very turbulent kind of an existence. It's, it's very tumultuous. It's, it's difficult. They're not comfortable in their own shoes. They struggle with, with those things. That, that makes it hard to wake up and feel that way. Um, and uh, so, you know, it's, it's this idea that, um, uh, that, we're, uh, that we have an existence and, you know, we can either accept it with humility or say that, no, we can change what God has created with a certain level, a large level, of pride. And it's this kind of, this kind of troubled existence that a lot of people, um, a lot of people go through. Um, you know, for, uh, um, for example, uh, there's a woman, Julie, and she describes, she talks about her situation. She woke up from a double mastectomy, mastectomy at a children's hospital in Syracuse, New York. And she had expected to feel elated. This was something that she was looking forward to. This was going to be the answer to her problems. She said, however, that she only felt numb. 
She thought at the time it wasn't supposed to be like this. Years later, she looked back on it with anger. With anger. Chloe was only 15 uh, when she um, had her breasts removed. She was unhappy. She had been unhappy with how she looked. At the age of 12, she started wondering if she was meant to live as a boy. Um, she got two years later. She got put on puberty blockers and started taking testosterone injections. By June of 2020, she was wheeled into an operating room for that surgery. Afterwards, 11 months later, she says she started to miss, quote, being pretty, close quote. And she made the brave announcement that she was going to detransition. She then became an outcast at school. She said, I was looking for a niche to fit in and a sense of fulfillment. Now she says, I don't really believe in gender identity at all. And there are stories upon stories upon stories like this. Um, people who go through this, this turmoil, they seek an answer, and then it doesn't help. Um, there's a study um, that shows that 80% of kids who experience gender dysphoria in their younger years grow out of it um, when they become adults. They, as adolescents or as adults, they grow out of it, 80%. And there's a, uh, there's a medical, there's a, an article that was written uh, in uh, a journal, uh, academic journal called Sex and Marital Therapy. It's titled, Reconsidering Informed Consent for Trans-Identified Children, Adolescents, and Young Adults, written by Stephen Levine and Abruzzese, uh, e, excuse me, there's an E, Abruzzese, and a Julia Mason as uh, the co-authors. Anyways, they point out some very interesting things. For example, a generation ago, Two to 14 people per 100,000, according to the American Psychiatric Association, um, identify with some incidents of, um, you know, gender dysphoria. So a generation ago, back in the 1980s, that's, you're talking about one ten thousandth, at the most, one ten thousandth of a percent of the people in the 1980s. Not a long time ago, 1980s, 1990s, not a long time ago. Then... Things began to rise around 2006. And by 2015, that number has risen, arose. I don't know what it is today. <coughs> but by 2015, it rose to 2 to 9% of U.S. high school students. So from one tenth thousandth of 1%, it is now 2 to 9%. It's a heck now, of a jump. If this is simply... Biological, people born in the wrong body. How does that happen? The authors of this article note that previously, most of the people that were affected by this identified as an opposite sex. Well, I'm a male, now I'm a female, and vice versa. However, there's a growing trend today where people identify as non-binary. They're neither male nor female, or they're both. So that's a... That's it. That's it. So not only do you have a quantitative difference, we have a qualitative difference. Now, again, if this is physiological, if this is something that is a byproduct of the way people are born, their physical bodies, then these types of changes on a qualitative and a quantitative level 
shouldn't be occurring. The same situation should have existed 100 years ago as exists today, if this is simply a result of how people are born. If we have dramatic changes, both on a quantitative and qualitative level, maybe there's some other, there has to be some other explanation. Anyways, apparently of the uh, people that now have gender dysphoria, 63% identify as non-binary, 63% of them. Uh, many of these people do suffer from comorbid mental health disorders, neurocognitive difficulties, ADHD, autism, history of trauma, things of that nature. Um, but those in the medical community, the article is concerned with whether or not enough attention is being paid to those by the medical community, as opposed to the treatment that is frequently prescribed these days, which is gender transition. In the UK, there is a, a clinic, and according to their data, um, in 2009, they had 51 requests for transition services. In 2019 to 2020, 10 years later, that number had risen from 51 to 2,728, a 53-fold increase. Why, if this is just simply a feature of the way people are born? Um, there is a theory of minority stress in the medical community, which is that people have, they suffer from the stress um, and the anxiety and the turmoil from being in this situation because there's prejudice and discrimination. Society makes them feel uncomfortable. There is, however, a lot of evidence that psychiatric symptoms often predate the onset of gender dysphoria, which means it wouldn't have been simply a result of societal reactions to somebody um, expressing themselves in a different gender context. Uh, brain studies have uh, yet to demonstrate a structure or pattern that accounts for an atypical gender identity. They haven't been able to find it in their brain studies as yet. All of this suggests that perhaps uh, that um, there are social influences that are causing more people to feel like gender transition is the answer, that society is prescribing the answer, that we're actually facilitating this, promoting this, suggesting this to people. It's the theory that we can decide who we want to be. It's as if it's not strictly related to medical causes and effects. It's not strictly related to that. If it was, then people who have these psychological problems before the onset of gender dysphoria would get treatment for those. But if our society, and many people say this, um, if our society just frequently preaches that, hey, no, your answer is gender transition, um, then we're not giving enough. Um, we're not giving enough attention to some of these other, some of these other problems. I take, for example, um, a young man, well, a young a young woman named Allie, who struggled with suicide attempts and sexual sexual abuse. Uh, she. Um, after a mere half-hour consultation, was prescribed cross-sex hormones at age 18. Half-hour consultation. She had struggled with, I mean, obviously she, she was a victim of sexual abuse, 
and had struggled with the depression that follows it that precipitated certain suicide attempts. And the answer, after a half-hour consultation, was hormones. And um, by age 20, she started attempting suicide again. Obviously, that didn't provide her an answer. She then was diagnosed, something that had previously been undiagnosed, with autism. And there's, there's more stories, similar, similar stories out there. So this is, this is a difficult issue that a lot of people are grappling with these days. And what we thought we'd, we'd look at is an official publication. It was put up by the Vatican in 2019. Pretty good institution. Yeah. You know, it's, it's been we'll, we'll around. It's, it's been around for a while. Right. It's been around for a while. Uh, and this comes from the Congregation for Catholic Education. And it was a paper that was entitled Male and Female, He Created Them, subtitled Towards a Path of Dialogue on the Question of Gender Theory and Identity and Gender Theory in Education. And it starts out talking about a neutral conception of anthropology, a neutral conception. That's a very different way of looking at the human person. It's the non-binary way of looking at a human person. It's, as I say, 63% of the people that now identify with gender dysphoria, they classify themselves as non-binary. There's a neutral perception of the human person, neither male nor female. Well, that changes things. That changes things. Male and female, he created them. That title, was, it's a nice title that, the, that was given to this paper. But, of course, it's a quote from Scripture. It's a, it's a quote, quote from, uh, you know, I mean, the Vatican's been around for a while. Well, yeah, they've been kind of paying attention a while for this. Genesis this, thing. This person called Christ yeah. who said male and female, he created them. Um, and, of course, yeah, it goes all the way back to Genesis. Um, if I mean we're not we're not talking about a small change to have a neutral perception of the human person is big it's not a treatment it's philosophical it's a different way of looking at the entire world that's that's a big change is it correct or are we just going along with it without asking the question is it correct? If it's not correct, well, you know we need to we need to deal with that. We need to do something about that. Um, and the other thing that comes out in this Vatican paper is this idea of reciprocity. Male and female, he created them, uh, is a blessing in a way. Okay, so people have male feelings. These people who suffer with gender dysphoria, they have male feelings, they have feminine feelings of one sort or another. You take the normal heterosexual, stereotypical, traditional family, one man, one woman, and young children. Well, what happens in that relationship? The man will connect with the woman's feelings, whether it's Pillows, you know, a lot of pillows on the bed. Oh, my goodness, I got pillows on the bed. Or, you know, some kind of lavender color in the bathroom or whatever. 
you know, guys will go along with that sort of thing because, you know, I mean, <laughs> otherwise, you know, you got an unhappy, unhappy spouse and that's not a good thing. But, you know, you learn to look at things from another person's point of view. You learn to look at things from a female's point of view and vice versa. And that's a very simple kind of, um, you know, example. But it, it's significant. When you are in a giving, loving, uh, beneficial relationship between a man and a woman, you make a gift of yourself. There's a lot of talk about self-actualization in philosophical and psychological circles. And according to this, this paper and according to Catholic teaching, you really do self-actualize. You really do fulfill who you are as a person when you give yourself to another person. When a man and a woman come together, they become united, as the Bible says, you become one. Well, you're doing that as two people, not as one person. Non-binary theory believes you can become male and female all by yourself. We said that the real issue here with gender theory is one of separation, one of dividing people. You're dividing the body. Not only are you dividing the body of Christ, you're dividing individual people. You're dividing a single body um, into, uh, you know, into something that it really the, the, the people aren't. You're dividing people from themselves, and you're dividing them from others. Man, a man and a woman can come together and become one. That's the whole idea of, of marriage. You become one. But they do it together. Here you're going to do it all by your lonesome. And isn't that, you know, modern society? You know, we don't need anybody. We can do it ourselves. We don't need God. We've got science. Of course, God and science go together, but that's a whole other discussion. I mean, God created science. God wants us to discover things through science. But that's a whole other discussion. And more the more and more science discovers, the more and more they, they find there's a reason for believing in God. But again, that's another discussion. I keep wanting to have this other discussion. Anyways, um, you know, but there's something unifying um, about looking at the world um, the way it was created. If you have men and women and they come together, they're doing it together. How do you want to live alone? Is loneliness a good thing? Do you create a lonely existence? If you're going to be male and female all by yourself, if, is it that kind of loneliness that causes so many people in this kind of situation to attempt suicide? This 12-year-old girl, the new story we started with, she attempted suicide at age 12. The world looked so bad that she wanted to leave it. Um, so um, this idea of you become whole, you fulfill yourself through other people. We don't live alone. We're not meant to live alone. Christ's whole idea, not his idea, but the whole idea behind Christ's mission was to give of himself for other people. He did nothing if he didn't give of himself. He gave everything for other people. That's the example that Christ's life 
means to us. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to give of ourselves to other people. If all we're concerned about is ourselves, or at least we're concerned about that more than anything else, then how can we, how can we do that? Is that the way that we want to look at the world? You know, in the story of Genesis, Ray, um, there's two stories in Genesis of the creation of the world. But in the story that goes first, God makes man, and man is there, and he names the animals, and he looks at all of the world that's presented to him, and he does everything God asks him to do. And in the end, he lets God know that he is not where he should be. He's somehow not together, not uh, full, not complete. And God puts him to sleep, and then from his rib creates Eve, and then the two he wakes and the two of them are together. In essence, in that story, he's saying the world is a lovely place, but it is through the fulfillment of man and woman together that we come together, join together with God to become one. And that's exactly what you've been saying, talking about, that you need both of those to come together, that we are made that way, and it is in the joining that we feel fulfilled. And isn't that a wonderful thing? Isn't that exactly what God drew up and what he desires for us. And with the gender dysphoria, we have knocked that system all over the place. It's completely confused. We're almost as if we're one by ourselves. Really difficult. And I think that's the point that you're trying to make, that it is not quite what God intended. Yeah. We, you know, we, we start out with a brief review of what we discussed previously with this idea that there's a, an element of separation from God in this. Then we talked about the idea that there's a separation from other people in this, and we talked about that a little bit recently, or just now. Um, separation from other people, like I said, the news in the news story, the parents, you know, the kid was told, don't tell your parents. There's, a sep- there's an element in this where we're separating ourselves, you know, from other people. And why wouldn't the answer be, if, if people are suffering discrimination, why wouldn't the a- answer be, if people are made to you know, feel that they're out of place, if their feelings get it, why wouldn't the answer be, well, let's correct the behavior of the people that are doing the discriminating and making people feel out of place? Why is it that instead we say, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you just change your gender? And because, and there's something very logical about that. Let me understand this. If I'm a male and I'm supposed to be treated and society treats me like a male, but I'm not really into you know, football or playing with toy soldiers or, you know, manly type things. And instead I like, I don't know, arts and crafts class, whatever. Um, and I'm not feel, I don't feel real comfortable because society expects me to like, you know, the, the tin soldiers and instead I like arts and crafts class and society doesn't appreciate me so I don't feel good. Well, then why is the answer, well, I'll just become a girl? Because if I do that, then I'm still looking for a different gender. This one's going to be accepted by society. I mean, I'm defining myself by the gender. At the same time, I'm saying that gender is not important. At the same time, I'm saying I can, I can be what I want. I can feel the way I want. I can, from this day, the next day, I can change. It all depends. I... You know, I, I can I can change this depending on how I feel, 
But it's terribly important that I feel that other people accept me as a woman now. And if they don't accept me as a woman now, now I'm going to be very upset. I mean, there's something just illogical in that. I'm defining myself by gender at the same time. I'm denying that, you know, that, that gender is, is controlling, that my physical body, that my physical body is something I have to take cognizance of. I can discount it entirely. It doesn't matter. It's, it's what's in my head that counts. And yet I want to look like a woman. I've got to, you know, change my body to make it look like a woman. I mean, those, those two things run counter uh, to one another. So there's this, so there, there are elements in all this of, of separation from other people, separation from your own self. And, and a lot of that has to do with what's called this dualistic notion of anthropology. As I said before, the Catholic Church maintains that our body is united with our soul. The two are one. This was the creation that God, uh, that God made. We have a soul. We have a body. They're one. God is the divine spiritual being that he was, united with a physical human body and became, became the Christ that we witnessed walking on this earth. Unity as opposed to disunity. On the other hand, if we say what's in our head is important, and if I feel like a certain gender that, I'm, that I am that gender— Regardless of what my body looks like, okay, and then I got to change it so that it looks like what I want it to look like. Okay, again, that's illogical. But if the important thing is my my brain controls, as opposed to my body controlling, then you're splitting a person in half. You're splitting their feelings, their mind, their consciousness. You're splitting the you know their brain from their body. You're, you're splitting the, the mental and the physical. You're splitting them right down the middle. If you maintain that what you think controls over what you are physically, you are splitting your consciousness, your brain, you're splitting your mind from your body. That is simply a fact of this. You are drawing a dividing line between those two parts of yourself. That's a divisive way of looking at just a single person. And if we have a divided way of looking at a single person, and then we look at all people the same way, it's a divided way of looking at all of humanity. This is, this is something that pulls us apart, and it's no happenstance that the school pulled this kid this little 12-year-old girl, apart from her parents. There's a divisiveness. We are splitting the body. Paul said, you know, one part of the body cannot say to the other, you know, we're not together. But that's what's happening. Why can't a school go talk to the parents? Why can't, if the parents are Catholic, why can't the school be unafraid to talk to the parents? If the Catholic faith is wrong, then they should have no problem debating it with the parents and trying to work with the parents. And if there's a difference of ideas, well, we don't always agree on everything all the time. There's an element here, well, we have to win. We have to win in the school's eyes. That's divisive. That's divisive. How about win some, lose some? How about we agree to disagree? How about, you know, we'll work on this? Um, you know, that's, 
How about we're open and honest about all that's going on to try to come to the right answer? How how confusing is this for a 12-year-old girl when the school says, we're going to do this, but shh, don't tell your parents who is what she's known her whole life. How confusing is that? She's already struggling, and now we're going to try to convince her to lie and hide and cheat and be deceptive to her parents along with everything else that's going on? If this poor kid wasn't frustrated to begin with, it, she's going to be destroyed at this point. What, what is it that she can count on? What is it that she can actually hold on to? We have really, really hurt this poor kid. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what happens. Um, that's, it is that kind of a, a split that makes it sensible for someone to attempt suicide. If things are that, you know, uh, confused. messed up or confused yeah. at their core, then the whole world would look so crazy that, yeah, maybe the answer would be, at least, at least as it looks to you then, hey, take my life. You know, and if, and if that makes sense, then obviously the way you're looking at things don't make sense. I mean, what are we supposed to do? All, all of us as a society, because we subscribe to some theory that is that is divisive um does suicide become the answer for everybody (laughs) absolutely not suicide is a long-term solution to a short-term issue you're upset you're confused you don't know what to do and you think that that might be an answer as opposed to getting all the information putting it out on the table and see how can we how can we help what can we do to allow you to understand the things that are going on, all the things that are going on around. And I, for me, lying, hiding, moving in secret does nothing but exacerbate and make the problem significantly worse. It is through dialogue, through conversation, through open understanding and love that we're going to come about in this way. It is not by, shh, let's hide it. It's, that's got to be about the worst way to attack. So the Catholic Church maintains that we're all part of Christ's body, that individually our soul and our physical body are one, and that we're connected to God in heaven. He destined us before the foundation of the world to be adopted to be parts of his direct family. Unity, unity, unity. The very image of the Trinity itself, unity. Unity beats disunity. Disunity carried far, far enough just simply yields chaos. There is a, a thinking and a philosophy that if it's based on disunity, leads to chaos. So if we're thinking about, you know, which is correct, which is true, which is connected to reality, St. Paul's idea that God created the human body, that we're all part of Christ's body, that we're connected to God, that, it, that there's unity at every level of, of human existence, or, the other, or another idea where we don't need God, we can change, you know, what God has created, and, um, you know, and that our own, you know, psyches can be separated from our own physical bodies. Well, you make the decision, which you think uh, sounds more sensible. Anyways, that is our attempt to deal with a divide, uh, to 
pardon, pardon the pun, uh, to deal with a divisive issue. And uh, we're going to close this program, like we always do, with a prayer for help, a uh, prayer for somebody to offer us some help from above. And as we always do, we're going to ask for help from Mr. Bob. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, you have a wonderful place called heaven that you are asking each of us to come to and join. And before that can happen, we live here on this earth with the difficulties and the torment and the struggles that we have, always hoping, always desiring that we can be with you someday. Allow us to truly understand that that this is a short-term journey here on earth where what we are doing is following you, following your path, following what you desire. And in order to help us, you didn't leave us alone. You sent your son. You allowed your son to come here and show us exactly what it was that we were supposed to do, exactly how we should live. You've sent prophets. You've sent Paul himself to allow us to understand this. Allow us always to look your way, look to heaven and know that it is not the struggles here on earth that this is all about. It is the eternity in heaven with you. And with that, with that love, with that hope, with Christ himself, we can turn to you, to follow you, to love you with all of our heart, and be joined with you for eternity in the not-too-distant future. We pray all of this in the name of that Son that came to save us, and that is Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the The Son, Son, and the Holy Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.